The aim of the studies is to look at how we do Bible study and do it at the same time. So as we are sharing the Word of God, we are reflecting on what it is we are actually achieving. A previous session, we looked at what the inspiration of Scripture means in terms of a tool to open up Scripture. Because we believe every word of Scripture is as God wished it to be written down, yeah? then we can look at that Scripture, that writing, that literature, and think about it as revealing us the mind of God, not the mind of the prophet who was chosen to reveal those words. So we thought quite a lot about that last night, and I think we all have one mind on the wonder of the Word of God. What we want to do in this session as an introduction to the whole day is to look at how we might find our way around the Bible using the Bible's own indicators. The theme is about how to follow the train of thought of Scripture. And I mentioned yesterday, people like me might read Scripture and be very confused when we read lots of repetitions. You think, well, yeah, we're doing the daily readings and, and we, we've, we've lost our place because we look at the verse, hey, didn't they just read that? Where am I? Have, have I lost my place? Have I gone backwards? I think actually what happens in Scripture, you get repetitions, sometimes quite detailed repetitions. And you think, why? What's that about? So what I'd like to do is to open up some of that and see how that might help us to, as Brother Lance said in his prayer, rightly divide the word of truth. Because that's really what we're trying to do. We're, trying, we're not bringing you know, outside commentaries to tell us how to, how to understand the Word of God. We're trying to look at how Scripture is teaching us to understand the Word of God. And the point I want to make today is that the chapters and verses that we, that we find when we open our Bibles have been put there uh, by the printers, <laughs> not by the prophet. <laughs> right? So that one of the barriers to taking a, a full view of Scripture is that we are forced, because of the numbers, to go from one to whatever. It, it's driving us along this road of uh, linear thinking, which may not be the way we're told to think about it. But let's start from the beginning, in the sense of where did our Bible come from? Where did the English Bible or the American Bible come from? Uh, and the I think we'll all, all be familiar with this, won't we? That the Old Testament was the Hebrew, probably best to call it the Hebrew Scriptures rather than the Old Testament because the Old Testament is a bit uh, misleading because, of course, the New Covenant is in the Old Testament. No, it's not really Old Testament. There's the Old Covenant and there's the New Covenant. Both are found in, in the Hebrew Scriptures. And the form of the Hebrew that we have from which our English Bible is translated is the Masoretic text, which is the formal uh, text of the Hebrew scriptures compiled about, well, over a thousand years ago, which has the notation for pronunciation, the, the vowel pointings, and so on. But it reflects uh, the original scriptures and the Dead Sea Scrolls, I think, uh, show us that the Masoretic text that we have is a faithful 
record of the original scriptures. There are differences of spelling, there are differences perhaps of pronunciation, uh, some of the markings might be different, but essentially the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, give assurance that the Hebrew Bible that we have is a faithful representation of the Hebrew Bible that the Lord Jesus Christ had. And that got translated into Latin in the 400 by uh, a man called Jerome. And the Latin Bible in the West was the Bible of the Catholic Church. Wycliffe translated the Latin into English, 1384. But that's a translation of a translation of the original languages. That's not ideal. When you, know, you go from one translation to another translation, you lose precision. So Tyndale, 1526, went back to the Hebrew. He had learned, he was an English clergyman, but he'd gone to Cambridge, he'd learned Hebrew and Greek. And from the original languages, he translated into English the whole of the New Testament and much of the Old Testament. At, uh, you know, under threat of death. In fact, he was murdered because he did the terrible thing of bringing the word of God into the English language. The Bishop of London bought up his first edition and burnt it outside St. Paul's Cathedral in London. Ironically, in buying it, he funded the next edition. And that edition became well-loved. But Tyndale had to flee to Belgium, and he was followed there, and he was strangled. Uh, what had he done wrong? He translated the Bible into English. So there were those who gave their life so that we could have an English Bible. The King James Version is a development of Tyndale's, based mainly on Tyndale's translation. The Old Testament Hebrew scriptures were also translated into Greek. I'm going to talk about this, uh, God willing, tomorrow, because I think this sometimes confuses us and gets in the way of understanding scripture. The New Testament Greek manuscripts were translated into Latin, but also collected together in 1516 by Erasmus and used by Tyndale to translate his New Testament. So that's where those... Uh, those uh, our English Bible comes from originally. If one went back to the Hebrew scroll, you can see that well enough. If you go back to the Hebrew scroll, you would not see something set out as the printers would set it out with spacing and margins and divisions of chapters and divisions of verses. This is somebody studying, I think it's the Isaiah scroll. And if you just look at it, you know, it, it's row after row, line after line, line after line of Hebrew writing. When the Lord Jesus Christ took the great Isaiah scroll in the synagogue in Nazareth, it says he, he opened it and he found the place where it was written. Now, this wasn't like turning over a few pages or you know, with the iPad just turning some, some pages. 
Have you ever seen an Isaiah scroll? Have you seen a synagogue scroll? You know, these are quite hefty things. And they are uh, in cases and they've got spindles through them, you know. And, and to open it up, and all you would see is lines and lines and lines of writing. No numbers, no divisions, no spacings. You'd have to be very familiar with the text of Scripture to find out the passage you wanted to go to. So I want to look at how, did, how would they know that? That's the Hebrew Old Testament. The New Testament was even more difficult. This is Manchester University's uh, Ryland's fragment. It's the oldest piece of the New Testament, going back to the time of the generation after the Apostle John. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? That this somebody wrote this who probably knew the Apostle John. It's a fragment of the Gospel of John written by somebody uh, old enough to have spoken to John. And this is how they wrote, and there's no punctuation, there's no chapters, there's no verses, there's, not, there's a few spaces between the words, but not consistently. Now, if you take a bigger section, this is Codex uh, Papyrus 66, uh, part of the Bodmer Papyri. This is the Gospel of John, and you can see that what it is, is line after line of letters with no spacing between the words even. No spacing between the words. It's called Scriptio Continua. Right? There's a name for it. Now, can you imagine? We've had three excellent readings this morning. Uh, brethren are reading, giving the sense, uh, you know, because... They, they know where they are. They're, they're, they're not jumbling their words. They can see the different words. They can see uh, you know, where, the, where, where the flow of thought's going. But supposing you had no punctuation, suppose you had no full stop, suppose you had no commas, suppose you had no paragraphs, suppose you had no spaces between the words. And the Lord Jesus Christ stood up and he found the place in the scroll where it was written and he read those words. How, how would you do that? This is helpful sometimes in interpreting scripture to realize that there's no punctuation. Can you think of a passage where we say, actually, there's no punctuation in the Greek and that's why we can read this passage a different way from the way the English Bible has it? Okay, let's turn that one up. That's Luke chapter 23, verse 43. And our explanation for this is the point we want to make. Some people will say, ah, you Christadelphians, you want to change the Bible all the time. When it doesn't agree with you, you want to rewrite it. Uh, and uh, I know my mother would, have, would say that uh, at times, you know. Uh, why don't you Christadelphians write your own Bible? Uh, and I say, this, one's, this is our Bible. This, one's, this one will do for us. Yes, but you keep saying, it's not like this, it's like that. And it sounds sometimes to people as if we are... We are tinkering with the word of God to make it fit with what we want. But we have to realize that's not the case at all. We have to go back to understand how those manuscripts came down to us. So verse 43, Jesus says to this, the thief on the cross, Verily I say unto thee, 
Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. How should we read that? Verily I say unto thee, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And the AV printers, or the King James translators, have put the comma after thee. Right? You can see that in your Bible. But how would you know where to put the commas? Because there weren't any commas in the Greek. You're not translating a comma. <laughs> there weren't any punctuation marks. Right? So this is what Tyndale did. There's no comma. Verily, I say unto thee, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. That was Tyndale's translation. The King James printers have put in a comma after thee. But there was another option. They could have put it in after today. And this is what Rotherham's uh, translation says. Verily I say unto thee this day, colon, with me shalt thou be in paradise. You see, now there's three different versions of exactly the same sentence in Scripture. Bringing it into English, you say, yes, but to make sense of that, we've got to put some punctuation. And where should the punctuation go? And Tyndale thought, well, I won't put it in at all because it's not there. Rotherham thought, I'll put it in after this day. And the King James people put it after thee. And of course, it's a matter of interpretation. So you might think, oh, well, you know, there are certain rules of Greek that when you go from Greek to English, the grammar tells you exactly what it should be. And that's not the case. There's interpretation in addition to looking at rules of grammar and so forth. And the King James Version is clearly influenced by their belief that there's an immortal soul which goes to heaven at the moment of death. So they've taken paradise to be heaven and they use this passage to teach that immediately the death of that thief occurred, he was going to go up to heaven. But it doesn't make sense. Because Jesus wasn't going to heaven that day. So how was he with me in paradise that day when the Lord Jesus Christ was going to the grave? Well, they've got a problem. Rotherham's actually captures something else. Because if one were to uh, think back to Scripture, and we went back, say, to Deuteronomy chapter 11, and listened, you know, if we got years to hear what's going on, as soon as we get that word today, um, right, that, that it's got a ring about it. If we're familiar with Scripture, the word today, can you think of a today passage? taken up in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, Psalm 95. Today, if he will hear his voice, heart not your hearts as in the day of provocation. Today, while it is called today. So there's something about, I say unto thee, today, that would, if we were listening carefully, have a ring about it to say, actually, I wonder if the comma's in the wrong place because uh, I say unto thee today, 
That sounds very much like the book of Deuteronomy, for example. Chapter 11 of Deuteronomy and verse 8. Therefore shall he keep all the commandments which I command you this day, or today, which I command you this day. Verse 13. It shall come to pass if he hearken diligent in my commands, which I command you this day. Verse 28. Um, and accursed if he will not obey the commandments of Yahweh God, but turn aside of those which I command you this day. So this use of the word today, or the phrase today, to emphasize the urgency, the importance, to press home the point, I'm telling you now, I'm telling you today, is, is, is really what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying. He's taking hold of uh, you know, the echoes of Old Testament and saying, look, I'll tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Paradise is the garden. It's, it's Eden restored. It's the kingdom. That's what the thief asked. Wilt thou, uh, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Jesus is not contradicting that. He's saying, when I come in my kingdom, that's paradise, the kingdom of God on earth, you will be with me. I'll raise you from the dead and you'll have a place in the kingdom. And I'm telling you that now. You know, it's a lesson for us all. You know, in the day of our mortality, we have to have that impressed upon us, the, the, the certainty of the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now oh, that interpretation is an interpretation. Ours is an interpretation. The King James was an interpretation. Their interpretation contradicted plain teaching of Scripture. Rotherham's is in keeping with the plain teaching of Scripture. I don't know what else Rotherham believed, but I'm not saying he believed the, you know, everything right. But in this case, I think he's, the way he has put the punctuation in has actually conveyed the true sense of the passage. How would I know what the true sense of the passage is? Only by, well, this is what I'm trying to say to you, listen to what it's saying. I say unto thee today, that's got a ring about it. It's got a, an echo of Old Testament scripture. We're not changing the Bible by saying that commas in the wrong place because there were no commas. What this means is that when we read a translation and then we read another translation and it's slightly different and then there's another translation slightly different and we pick and choose which one we like, we've got to be ever so careful that we're not picking according to a bias that we have. Or we give too much credence to the translators. Well, the NIV says this, it must be right. When they are using interpretation as well as their translation skills. So in a sense, this frees us up to give a proper understanding of Luke 23. It might take a while, and the people that we're trying to explain it to might say, oh, you're changing the Bible. Well, uh, we are changing the printer's decision because we believe that printer's decision is wrong, that Rotherham's decision is, is probably right. And if you weren't fair, we'd say, well, actually, Tinder got it right by leaving it out and... Uh, saying it's a matter of interpretation, how you understand that passage. But does this take us into deep water? Are we messing about with the Bible? Right? Uh, we'll be very cautious, of course, about you know, saying, oh, that's all wrong. We're not saying that. But there are times when we have to realize that the original scriptures had this phenomena. 
what that comes down to then is that uh, we have to realize that what we are reading is partly an interpretation and partly a dividing up of the text of Scripture to make it easier for us to follow, but it's got a downside. These quotes come from Jewish Bible Society commenting on the Hebrew Bible. So I was interested to know, well, I was reading about this punctuation or the absence of punctuation. So, well, how, how do the... How did the Jews themselves explain how their Bible came to have chapters and verses? How do, how do they think it came about? If the Masoretic text didn't have chapters and verses, who put them in and are they in the right place? Should they be there at all? And this is from that book and it says, the chapter numbers now found in Bibles, and that's talking about the Hebrew Bible, are not part of the traditional Masoretic text, but rather date from the 13th century manuscripts of the Vulgate, the Latin translation of the Bible that the early church fathers wrote. So the chapter divisions come from the Catholic Church. That's where they come from. They don't come from the Hebrew prophets. When the Bible started to be printed, they incorporated those chapter divisions. But look what it says. Those chapter divisions are relatively recent, representing one particular understanding about the, how the Bible may be subdivided. Paragraphs. Well, there were some markers in the Hebrew, Pentateuch, to, to separate out paragraphs, and there are things called the setuma and the petucha, which are spaces or lines left blank, which create paragraphs. So, for example, these spaces divide up this sort of section into a paragraph. So there were some indications of separation. Because what I want us to think about is what makes a se- what makes a section of scripture. Now, when we, I know in our Bible class, say we're doing Timothy, the Epistle of Timothy, and, and it's my turn to do chapter four, right? Now, is chapter four a sensible division? <laughs> right? You can apply this to anything. You know, we're going through the Gospel record of Mark. I've got chapter. I don't, Bible, when I go back home, I, our Bible class in Mumbles Ecclesia, I've got Zechariah chapter 7. And I've looked at Zechariah chapter 7. That's not a chapter at all. How do I speak about chapter 7 without encroaching on the next brother's chapter 8? Because they're all one of a piece. So if I just speak to what I think is a proper section, he's got nothing to say. Because <laughs> I've spoken on his subject. So we've divided it up for our Bible class according to the numbers. But it doesn't make sense. And if I stick to my chapter 7, I can't really expound it properly because it it concludes at the end of chapter 8. So in some ways, we've sort of hamstrung ourselves by by being focused, fixed on on these chapters and and thinking somehow, ah, no, brother, that's not your chapter, that's my chapter. We've sort of artificially constrained our thinking about about it. What we've done is divide up a scroll into little sections when 
I don't think the Hebrews would have divided it up. But we take a letter from the Apostle Paul and we read it over three days. When the Ecclesia would have heard it read at one sitting, right, as a letter, the whole thing beginning to end. Oh, you can't possibly do that. It'll take far too long to read in the format of our meeting that we've set up. <laughs> so the flow of thought's gone. There's been 24 hours between it. And then we read chapter 3 with no recollection of what chapter 1 and 2 are about and hope that we can get something from chapter 3. <laughs> but that's not the way the scriptures have been written. And it's not the way they're to be read. That's the point I'm trying to make. So just going back there, the problem with these spacings is they're not necessarily consistent across all copies of those scrolls. So they're not, they're not definitive. Let me give you an example. If you come to Isaiah 53, wonderful chapter, uh, remarkably uh, uh, such a, a detailed account of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ as the sacrifice that God has provided to take away our sins. It's, it's amazing. It starts in verse 1. Who hath believed our report? To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Does it start in Isaiah 53 verse 1? This song, is it from verse 1 to verse 12? Is that really the song? And have you got it marked in differently? Where does the song start? Well, if you go to the great Isaiah scroll, which you can do online because uh, Israel has made available the uh, uh, images of the scroll and you can bring up the scroll and you can, as you put the cursor over a different part, it tells you in English which, which verse it is. So you can find your way around. And can you see this space here? That signals the end of uh, a paragraph and the start of something new. Now you come all the way down here until verse 58 when there's a space. And then verse 59 of chapter 53 carries on. And then there's a space and that's the end of chapter 53. So if you were to follow the, the, the great Isaiah scroll, sections off Isaiah 52, verse 13, right? That's verse 13 there, as a new section, which goes down then, to chapter 54, and there are some spaces. Point being this, that this song, of which Isaiah 53 is a part, begins in chapter 52, verse 13. Right? So when we read, just we read Isaiah 52, we're leaving out the first three verses of this servant song. So you, you think it's quite important to understand that these chapter divisions are artificially put there. They're not there 
because that's what the Hebrew scroll has told the printers to put it there. They're there because somebody thought, and that somebody wasn't anybody, it was the Bishop of, uh, Archbishop of Canterbury uh, in 1000 AD, Bishop Stevens, thought that's where they should go. I presume he had an army of people deciding the right place, but they were interpreting the text to decide that's where to put it. And they got the chapter 53 in the wrong place. And you can see that because, verse 13, Behold my servant. It's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ being exalted and very high. So verse 13 of chapter 52 goes along with verse 12 of chapter 53. The servant is exalted. Verse 14 says, but his, he, many were astonished at thee. His visage was marred. Right? And you go that to verse 2 of chapter 53 and you say, he has no comeliness. There's no beauty. Why? Because his, his face was marred. See, it's all part of a piece. So if we were really going to study the servant song, we'd have to start in chapter 52 verse 13. And see that that's a section of scripture. Uh, other gaps, uh, other spaces. So there's a space then between verses, what we got as verse 8 and 9. Right? Now, does that make entirely clear sense? Not to me it doesn't. So I'm not sure what, why they, they separated that there. But verse chapter 54 verse 1 does seem to start a new Concept, sing, O barren, thou that didst not bear. It's talking about a woman. Chapter 53 is talking about a man. Chapter 54 is talking about a woman. There's a change of subject matter. So I can say, I think chapter 54 chapter is in the right place. There's a proper division. But chapter 53 division is in the wrong place. How dare I say that? By what authority do I say that? With no authority except trying to listen to what it's saying. So we, in that way, we have permission to depart from the, the layout the printers have given it. And I'm sure if you went to a more modern translation, it would capture the, the servant song properly. But the problem is that another modern version will lay it out differently. And another third modern version will lay it out differently again. So you can't say, ah, of the, no, the ESV is the modern version, it's got it right. That's a matter of interpretation. What about verse divisions? Well, interestingly, in the Hebrew, there were some indications of where a sentence came to an end. And possibly, in later medieval manuscripts, the Hebrews put some musical notes in to suggest the end of a verse. So people tried to divide up the Bible into verses uh, in, in ancient times. But the conclusion of the whole thing is this. This is the Jewish Bible Society's you know, official book on the Bible. This is what they say. The Bible should be envisioned as a text punctuated only by word spaces. That's the Hebrew Bible. That's all it is with nothing to indicate sections, paragraphs, or even verses. Our first step when reading all biblical texts must be to subdivide that biblical text 
into these kinds of units. But that is a matter of interpretation. That is a matter of us hearing how Scripture is speaking to us. Okay? Often it's absolutely straightforward. We know when one psalm begins and another psalm ends. Yes, you know, we, we, we're not arguing about that. But when you come to the book of Jeremiah, boy, is it difficult. Why is it difficult to know what's going on? Personally, that's my feeling. You know, you know, where does, is it just 20 chapters <laughs> you know, of uh, that huge block of scripture just going on and on? Does it not pause anywhere? Does the subject matter change? That's what we have to look at. And the way we do that is, in the English, there's a correspondence between the words in the English and the words in the Hebrew. That is, if the translation is word for word, if it's got formal equivalents. We, we often say, ah, what's the Hebrew word for that? And, and we look at the concordance and we find a Hebrew word for that English word. Well, only because that English word has been translated to represent that Hebrew word. That's called formal equivalence. If, instead of going word for word between the languages as best they can, they go idea for idea there wouldn't necessarily be an English word for a Hebrew word. So we have to take into account that what translations are we using. The American revision of the King James says something interesting. Where they came across Hebrew, what they call Hebrewisms, or Hebrew figures of speech, they say we have everywhere adopted the idiomatic English rather than the slavish literal rendering. Well, I think it's a problem because I want a slavish literal rendering, <laughs> you know. I, I'm not looking for elegance here, as I want to know what the Hebrew is. I can't speak Hebrew. I want to know how I get back to the Hebrew. I want to use the concordances. So, personally, I want a translation which uses the principle of what's called formal equivalence, word for word. The alternative is thought for thought, which is called dynamic equivalence. This is from the Christophe magazine, 2002, where John Morris set this out. So the authorized version is as close to word for word as any translation. The New King James, the revised version, they depart a little bit from formal equivalence. Once you get across here, you come to, in the end, you come to paraphrases. And you can see the danger because once people start putting the words of Scripture into ideas in English, they've had to go to a phase of what's the idea here? What's Isaiah trying to tell us? You know, if only it could have done it a better job we would have known better. Let's see if we can work out what he's trying to say and put it as best we can into modern English. Problem, these translations uh, say the soul goes to heaven when we die. So somebody says, you know, the Bible says, you know, the kingdom of God is in heaven and we go to heaven. But my Bible doesn't say that. How about... But my Bible does, the Good News Bible, the Living Bible. And I, I, you know, I've looked at it. They do, they do argue that. Yeah, but how, how is that possible to get to such error? 
because they're not going word for word. They, th they think the kingdom of heaven means the kingdom's in heaven. Therefore, they think Jesus is saying that when we die, we go to heaven. So that's what they're going to put into the Good News Bible. So instead of translating word for word what Jesus said, they interpret it, put their idea in, and it becomes a paraphrase. So in that spectrum, you may like, disagree with uh, this, this chart and say, well, look, I think the NASB is word for word very good. Well, I'm just saying, think of the concept, right? That there is a, the translations range from as literal as they can get, which then might sound rather awkward and peculiar, to, ah, oh, this one reads beautifully, but it's wrong, <laughs> right? The NIV, right? Is, is beloved by many because it flows nicely and yet it's more paraphrase than it ought to be by my opinion so you, we can't just say ah i'll find a version that i like i'll find a version that uh you know i think this is the best version why it's the clearest of all the versions yes but is it clearly wrong or is it clearly right you know, that's what we have to ask. What we want is to know. I said, why don't you learn Hebrew then? I wish I had. It's one of my great regrets. A brother, when I was in college with him, was fluent in Hebrew. And he said, you know, Stephen, you should learn Hebrew. You can do it, you know. It's, uh, learn the alphabet uh, and you can learn to read the Hebrew Bible very quickly. And, uh, you know, doing medicine, it was busy. I, I couldn't think of even doing that. Now there's a group in South Wales, I think mainly sisters, uh, uh, who are learning Hebrew and are able to read the Hebrew Bible. Not because they have to give talks on it, but because they want to read it. Uh, they want to learn. They find it exciting. They find it interesting to look at you know, the Word of God in its original. And uh, there's a brother uh, who takes a class on a Sunday evening uh, every so often, and there's, you know, it's, it's a good group of, of them learning. So, uh, and I say it's mainly sisters. So it's interesting, isn't it? You know, we think oh, it's not possible for us, brethren, too busy preparing talks. <laughs> and we're using these translations, each of which has it's got its pluses and minuses. And we are, you know, we're, we're choosing between them, we're pulling them down. And <laughs> I just think it would have been good. And it's not that these sisters are uh, supremely academic. Of course, they're very clever. But uh, it is they're just applying their minds to the word of God a little bit each day, building up a knowledge and familiarity. The children in Adelaide uh, Heritage College, uh, they're doing Hebrew as their second language. So when Brother Lane Whitmire was there, he taught Hebrew to the children. So that's bound to be beneficial to them, isn't it? You know, they're going to get into the thought patterns of the Hebrew and so on. So this sort of raises the ceiling a bit. It says, you know, we don't have to be constrained by uh, things that have been imposed upon us. We can sort of broaden it out and say, ah, so it's up to us how we divide up the word of God. Imagine there are no spaces between the words. Imagine that. So you'd have to rightly divide. The word rightly divide is one Greek word, orthotomio, which means to cut straight. The Apostle Paul is saying to Timothy, cut straight the word of God. Well, if you see those letters together, you say, well, where does 
the word start and finish. Okay, I put a line there. So in your mind, when you're reading, you have to put these lines down between the words so that you can say them properly. What this comes to is that these units of thought or, or sections or paragraphs, uh, it, it, we need to think of how we should recognize them. And there are these um, indications within Scripture about how to define a section. And I think you, know, you might say, oh, what's he talking about? How to rightly divide the word of God, how to understand the word of God, how to free ourselves from the authorized version. Terrific, but not perfect. Uh, the chapter divisions may be in the wrong place. It may lead us in mumbles to divide up Zachariah in a way which isn't accurate. Uh, and that means we, ne we never actually see it as it is because we've broken it up into sections which are not quite there. Now we need to stand back and say, how should we properly read Zechariah? How is it? How is the flow of thought? Does it naturally stop at the end of chapter 6? Well, yes, it does in the sense of these visions take us from chapter 1 to chapter 6. Uh, and then, well, there's a section perhaps that goes from chapter 7 to the end of chapter 8. Uh, and that needs to be looked at as a section. And, you know, maybe if we were rewriting the Bible Companion, we would uh, not break them up that way. Maybe, you know, in the book of Revelation, instead of reading Revelation chapter 4 one day and chapter 5 the next day, we'd say, actually, 4 and 5 is one piece. Let's read that together. We might go back earlier and say, actually, chapter 2 and 3, instead of reading chapter 1 and 2, and then chapter 3 and 4, we say, let's read the seven letters together as one piece because, you know, the seven ecclesias are a unit of thought. The Lord is walking between the lampstands, and that's when you look at the seven of them together. You know, there are lessons in seeing the whole seven. In other words, we look at the ecclesial world as, as an entity and say, ah, I've got to take into account Laodicea at the same time as Ephesus. I've got, to, I've, got to, I've got to realize the range of possibilities here in one look. And then chapter 4 and 5 and so on. Yeah, so I'm just saying that, uh, I'm criticizing Brother Roberts, he did a fantastic job. I think he was only 14 when he developed the Bible Companion. All right. uh, and when he developed it, he cut it down to half what he was reading each day. Because <laughs> when he started work, he couldn't sustain reading six portions of scripture each day because uh, they work long hours uh, and so he cut it down to three so you know certainly not criticizing him just saying as we become as we start to realize what these units of thought are we should look at them in that way so some of these are, are go, we'll show some examples but one thing I want to look at uh, two things I want to look at is this this concept of bracketing or envelope structure and this ring structure, which I know they're technical terms, but you can see what I mean as scripture. So if you come to Deuteronomy chapter 1, this is a really good example. Deuteronomy chapter 1. If you look at the beginning of this scroll where Moses is speaking to the children of Israel 
his last opportunity. He's going to die, and they're going to be taken into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. We're told in verse 1 to 5, uh, these be the words of Moses, which Moses spake unto all Israel on this side, Jordan, in the wilderness, the plain over against the Red Sea, between Paran, Tophel, Lebe, and so on. Verse 3, and it came to pass in the 40th year, in the 11th month, the first day, Moses spake unto the children of Israel, verse 4, after he had slain Sihon, the king of the Amorites, which dwelt in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, which dwelt at Ashtoreth and Edrei, on this side, Jordan, in the land of Moab, began Moses to declare. There's quite a lot of detail about Moses speaking, where he was speaking, at what time he was speaking, and particularly a reference to Sihon, verse 4, and Og. Okay? Uh, we come to chapter 4, come to the end of chapter 4, and we've got verse 44. This is the law which Moses set before the children of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes, the judgments which Moses spake of the children of Israel after they came forth out of Egypt on this side Jordan, in the valley over against Bethpeer, in the land of Sihon, king of the Amorites, Verse 47, and they possessed the land of Og, king of Bashan. You set them alongside each other, and you can see the similarities between the opening five verses of Deuteronomy and the last five verses of chapter 4 of Deuteronomy. They've got all the same concepts and the same language, although the order of points is slightly different. You can see by this color coding that... We have been brought back to our starting point. When we come to the end of chapter 4, we're brought back to our starting point. Now that defines, uh, you know the phrase, bookends. People use that quite a lot, don't they, in the brotherhood. Now the bookends. Well, it's called an envelope structure. As if this section of scripture has been packaged in in a clear way. You the thought at the end of the section is a repetition of the thought at the beginning of the section. And what that does is tell us that Deuteronomy chapters 1 to 4 is an entity in its own right. Moses calls the people together. He gives them an address. And at the end of chapter 4, they disperse back to their tents. Chapter 5 is a new event. And Moses called all Israel. Well, chapter 5, verse 1 is telling us. This is the second discourse. Moses called them back. Come back again. Now, how many days passed? Don't know. Maybe a day or two. They've had to think about what Moses said, and now they call back. So when we're doing Deuteronomy, it's quite right to say that chapter 1 to 4 is an entity. Look at it together. Look at the whole thing together. And you know what it's about? Well, it's about what's been mentioned at the beginning and the end. Sihon and Og. Chapter 2 talks about Sihon. Chapter 3 talks about Og. Why? What was it about them? Well, this is the... Get right down to the point. These people who are going into the promised land, their parents are dead. In the wilderness. Because they were afraid of giants. That's why, that's why they're not there already in the promised land, because they're afraid of giants. What Moses has done 40 years later, or 38 years later, 
They say, let's go and kill the last giant on this side of Jordan, having tramped through the land that once once the land of giants. They're not there anymore. Did you see any giants? No, but it used to be the land of giants. It's not the land of giants anymore, is it? No. And that's why your parents didn't need to be afraid, because God dealt with those giants, didn't he? Even your cousins, you know, the Moabites and the Ammonites, they dealt with the giants. God says he'd take you to the promised land. He'd take you to the promised land. What were giants? Why were giants a problem? Let's go see the last giant on this side, Jordan, Og, King of Bashan. Let's go on a 180-mile round trip. Defeat Og, King of Bashan. Let's come back, then we cross over Jordan with Joshua. That's what the section's about. The first four chapters is about saying giants are not a problem. If you have faith, then the flesh is nothing to stand in our way. So you say, oh, what's the book of Deuteronomy about? It's, well, yes, you can say what the book of Deuteronomy is about. But actually, this section is about something very particular, the impediment to inheriting the land because of lack of faith, because of the fear of giants. Moses takes them through that land, and you've noticed in chapter 2 how many times he says, that used to be a land of giants. Oh, they were called by a different name, you know, the Zuzim, Zamzim, uh, you know, whatever you call them. They were the giants, and they're not there now, and they're not there now, and they're not there now. And we had to go all the way up to Bashan to find one last giant, and he didn't last against us, did he? So let's go into the promised land. And I can imagine Caleb saying, oh God, 45 years I've been waiting for this. <laughs> Save me some giants, please. <laughs> Oh, yes, you can have Hebron. Okay, there's some giants there, right. <laughs> right, so that's what those four chapters are about. If you then, you know, apply that same principle, chapter 5 takes you up to chapter 26. The second discourse is a very long discourse, but it's divided up into sections. So look at chapter 6, verses 6 and 9, and compare that with chapter 11, verses 18 to 20. So, okay, you look at chapter 6, verses 6 to 9, right? And I'll read chapter 11, verses 18 to 20. Therefore you shall lay up these words in your heart and in your soul, and bind them for a sign upon your hands, that they may be there as frontlets between your eyes, and ye shall teach them your children, Speaking of them, when thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou rise, liest down, when thou risest up, thou shalt write them upon the doorposts of thine house and upon thy gates. Now you see the similarity? It's almost word for word. The order's different, but it's almost word for word. Right? right? So you get these, these two sections of scripture are in parallel. And they tell us, really, they, they bring the thought right back round to where we start. Now, why would you start in chapter 6 and go to chapter 11? Why not start in chapter 5 and go to chapter 12? If you look at Deuteronomy, chapter 5 and chapter 4 are almost identical. And in fact, when we're doing the readings, you know, we read chapter 4. We say, oh, no, we got it wrong. We read this yesterday. Got no, actually, that was chapter 4. Oh, but it's the same chapter. Ah. But chapter 4 is the end of one discourse. Chapter 5 is the beginning of the other discourse. So what's happened is this. That what, what Moses does, chapter obviously the spirit word, what Moses, through the wisdom given unto him, is saying is, 
We've dealt with the giants. Now let's get back to fundamentals. Let's go back to Mount Sinai. Let's go back to where Israel was constituted, the nation before God. And let's hear the voice of God. Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking from heaven? Let's do what your parents didn't do and listen to that voice. Go, with, go back to your tents and think about that. Now sometime later, he gathers them together again and says, have you thought about that? Where were we when we last met? Oh, we were at Mount Sinai. So chapter 5 says, let's go back to Mount Sinai again and hear what the voice says. And it spoke the Ten Commandments. So chapter 5 goes back to Mount Sinai. They're listening to the voice from heaven and they're hearing God speaking those Ten Commandments. That's what God wants them to receive. When we come to chapter 6, and chapter 6 may be in the right place, you know, I'm not saying they're, they're always wrong at all. I think man, they're mainly right, but I'm just saying that we need to think about what we're reading. Chapter 6 starts, now these are the commandments and statutes which Yahweh your God commanded you. So what chapter 6 is, now you heard that voice from heaven, and I, you asked me to go up and hear the word and bring it back to you. And I did that. I went up to the mount and I heard the word and I brought back all these commandments and testimonies the pattern of the tabernacle and all that, I came back with it. Chapter 6, and this is what God said. And he says, Hear, O Israel, I shall love the Lord thy God with all thine heart. That's what he said. That's, the, that's in a nutshell what he said. And then it goes into chapter 7. God asks you to love him because he loved you first. Chapter 7. Chapter 8, as a father loves a child and chastens it. Chapter 9, not because you are a righteous people, because you're a stubborn and stiff-necked people, right? but for God's righteousness' sake, not for your righteousness, for God's righteousness. And chapter 9 and 10 illustrate how stubborn they were because it reminds them that they'd worshipped the golden calf, that the original ten tablet, the tablets of stone had been smashed, that the tablets they now have in the ark are a replacement, right? And then it takes you to chapter 11, where we got to and says, Now, Israel, you've got a choice. Life or death, choose life. And then that passage from verse 18 to, to 21 takes us to where we started at the beginning of chapter 6. So it comes to a natural uh, cycle. It comes back to the beginning. It defines chapter 6 to chapter 11 as a unit of teaching. And when you look at chapter 12, it indicates we are now on to a different section because it starts off by saying, these are the statutes and judgments which ye shall observe to do in the land which Yahweh thy God giveth thee to possess. In other words, when you get into the land, then this is what you've got to do. You've got to set up one place of worship. You've got to remove all false places of worship. This is what you eat. This is how you will look after the needy. This is how you will worship. This is how you will rule. Right? These are the laws for everyday life. So chapter 12 right up to 26 is a subsection of the whole. So when you look at Deuteronomy like that, you'll see that it does itself tell us how we should subdivide it, if I can put it like that, right? Of course, it's all of a scroll, but 
it would be fair to take a breath at the end of chapter 4 and say, what was that all about? And then to read chapter 5 and say, that's so similar to chapter 4. What am I being told here? What is so important that it ends one speech and starts the next speech? Something fun. And then we go through chapter 6 to 11 and we hear, all oh, right, I see. I'll come back to, this is, this is, these are the principles of salvation based on God's love for us as a father. Because of his righteousness, not our own. It's, it's a beautiful demonstration of the true principles of atonement. To walk in faith and love because of God's grace shown to us. Not because we're special. We're not special. Not many mighty, not many noble are called. Right? God chose Israel. He says, you are not the most numerous of all people. But you're of the fathers. And if you're of the faith of the fathers and you walk in my ways, you walk in the paths of life and I'll give you the blessings of the kingdom. So it's absolutely wonderful to see that. It's not just chapter after chapter. There's a fullness about this section which speaks to us eloquently of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ to come. Obviously, this could apply to any section, any, any book of the Bible, any scroll of Scripture. Um, we might consider, should it be broken down? I don't like that word, but, you know, could it, should it be subdivided so that we can capture the train of thought? That, those beginnings and ends are called inclusio, funny old word, or bracketing, or an envelope structure. Right? And uh, if you got that, you got it. Right? That's, that's what I wanted to say. There's a book by David Dorsey, which uh, I think several Christadelphians I know back home have found very helpful. I certainly think it's, it's well worth uh, uh, looking at. It's not an interpretation of Scripture. It's looking at the literary form. So it's free, I think, of a lot of doctrinal biases, although always be cautious of any anything we read, but in this book, The Literary Structure of the Old Testament, it's an American uh, professor of Old Testament in one of the seminaries somewhere. Uh, he's got all these suggestions as how to recognize the beginning of a section. Right? You can see some of the uh, indication, in other words, the words themselves. Uh, like, hear, behold, woe, therefore. These are words which say, Oh, right. something coming here, something new here. Right. And now, in that day, and, and so on. So what he's saying is the words themselves, the language of Scripture, if we're tuned into it, is really calling us to pause at certain points or be ready for a new thought at certain points. And for me, I... You know, I, I'm telling you things I find helpful, right, in the hope that you might find them helpful. For me, it's important because I'm impatient, right? I want to race on. I want to get to the end. I want the bullet point, <laughs> you know? Ta what's the takeaway point? What's the takeaway message, you know? How can I summarize this, in, in, you know? In, I can't hang around here, you know? Uh, and this is saying, no, no, look, stop here. Pause here. Reflect here. 
Go back and have a look at it. Take it in. What, what, you know, work out, listen to what it's saying. See what it's saying. Find the flow of thought. Let the word teach us how to understand it rather than the other way around. Right. Obviously, you can't take all that in. I can't anyway, at one look. But then he suggests another nine. <laughs> and some of these are pretty obvious. Like, remember, Isaiah 54 was talking about a woman. Isaiah 53 was talking about the manservant. So there was a shift in the character. There may be a shift in the theme. There may be a shift in the type of, of, of scripture it is, uh, and so on. So we recognize these instinctively, don't we? It's, it, it's pretty obvious when it starts talking about a very different subject. But just worth bearing in mind the concept. And then there are, he suggests, N markers. He gives nine examples of N markers, including that word, we showed you there, the inclusio. Just trying to get the idea of dividing up now. So what I was wanting us to do when we break out is to simply review some passages of Scripture, which anyone you want, actually. It doesn't, it doesn't matter which section it is. I just thought it would be useful if we asked ourselves, are the chapter divisions in the right place? In other words, just put it this way. If there were no chapter divisions in the Bible... Where would you put them? <laughs> right? so it's, and it is up to you and me, isn't it? Because they aren't there. If we think there should be separation indicated, why and where would we put that separation? And what we're trying to say is, well, follow the thought. When the thought comes to a conclusion, separate it out. If that's the way it's written. As in Deuteronomy, I think it's entirely sensible to put chapter 5 where it is. But, but it's not sensible to put chapters 2, 3, and 4 in. <laughs> it really ought to be discourse number 1, which goes all the way up to what we call chapter 5. And then we'd start and say, discourse number 2, subsection A, <laughs> chapter 5, subsection B, First, chapter 6 to 11. Subsection C, chapters 12 to... That's what I would do if I was dividing it up. All I'm trying to ask us is to think, how is Scripture calling us to answer that question? So, you know, one can you know, say, look, these are our daily readings today. Gospel of John, chapter 1 to 4. We read chapter 4 now. Is chapter 4 in the right place? How, how would any of us know? We'll have a look at chapter 3 and 4 and see what you think. Where does the flow of thought of chapter 3 finish, or, or doesn't it finish in chapter 3? If you want to be ambitious, we could, you could look at uh, some of the epistles, if you've been studying some of that. We read these two recently. Did they make sense to you? <laughs> you know, they're really tough, aren't they? To, if you're doing the daily readings from Ephesians, wow. Uh, what was that about? <laughs> you know, uh, so if you want to have a go at that. And then if you think of subdivisions, this is, these are the daily readings today. Does it make sense to think about dividing them into subunits? Uh, uh, where would you put? I know there's verses there, but does it, are the verses in the right place? Do they make sense? Uh, let me give you one example of where I think of verses in the wrong place. See if you agree. In Zechariah chapter 1, 
Zechariah chapter 1 and verse, uh, verse 6. Have a look at Zechariah chapter 1, verse 6. And just see if that verse makes sense to you. And what, what's happening here is that Zechariah is saying to the people, don't be like your parents' generation who wouldn't listen to the prophets that God sent them. Verse 4, be not as your fathers, and to whom the former prophets have cried, saying, Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, turn, but they did not hear, nor hearken unto me, saith Yahweh. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? Then you've got verse 6. Does verse 6 make sense? Would you put a division in anywhere? Okay. So I agree with that. So, but my words and my statutes, which are command my servants, the prophets, did they not take hold of your fathers? There's, I think there's a division there between that and the next thought. So when it says, and they returned, that's not talking about the fathers, because they didn't turn. That's why they're in captivity. It's talking about the people that, that Zachariah is talking to. In other words, Zachariah says, don't be like your fathers who wouldn't turn. And they, okay, we won't. <laughs> we will turn. So the sense there, I take this to be, that and they returned are the people Zachariah is speaking of. They said, you know, Zechariah, you're absolutely right. Like as Yahweh hosts thought to do unto us according to ways, and according to our doing, so hath he dealt with us. In other words, they're saying, Zechariah, you're absolutely right. That's why we're in captivity. We recognize what you're saying. We, we, we are turning to God. You know, we, we've been going astray like our fathers. We've been look, building our own houses. Oh, you're absolutely right, Zechariah. Uh, we're going to stop here and we're going we're gonna to turn back to God. So do you see that just the cutting up of the verses is actually compressing two different time periods and we need to separate that out. So is the King James Version mashed all together? Yes, the King James Version has like, oh, and they returned in the middle of the verse, right? Now, That's right. So that, that would make sense. So, and again, I'm not criticizing the King James Version, you know, saying this is, uh, you know, we're trying to correct the King James. Every version will have its own interpretation of where verses go. In the original, there weren't verses. There wasn't punctuation. Yes, Jeff? Why did God allow his word yeah. Uh, well, I think we would all agree that, that uh, God has providentially preserved the original text or copies of the original text. So the transcribing, I think, is not what we have a problem with. It's the translating is where the problem comes. Yes, in transcribing, there are what are called variant readings. So 
you take the New Testament, there are thousands of variant readings, you know, copies which are slightly different one from another. And uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls are slightly different from the Masoretic text, but not so much as to make any difference in teaching. They're slightly different in terms of spelling or um, the New Testament. You know, there are errors. There are errors in the copying of manuscripts because there are manuscripts which have got uh, lines missing and manuscripts which have got duplicate lines. And when you compare the text, you say, oh, obviously the scribe lost his concentration at that point. God did allow people to tamper with the text. The King James Version incorporates a verse which was put in fraudulently into a Greek manuscript that was made to look ancient because they needed a verse to prove the Trinity. And they didn't have one. Now, the, the Latin translation had that verse. There are three that bear record in heaven, you know. Uh, but, and that was put in. And Erasmus was criticized by the Catholic Church saying, you know, you've left out an important verse. You know, we use this verse to prove the Trinity against these brethren types who deny the Trinity. And he said, well, if you can show me a genuine ancient Greek manuscript with that verse in, I'll put it in. So I think it was like the fourth edition or something like that. They said, hey, here, here's an ancient Greek manuscript we found with that verse in. So he put it in. He incorporated it in his, uh, his New Testament Greek, and the translators translated it. It subsequently been shown to be fraudulent. A priest made it look like an ancient manuscript. It's, it's a manuscript which is in Dublin. Brother Leiden Rittmeyer, uh, you know, has seen it, you know, and tells us the story about how they fraudulently put in. So you say, well, why did God allow that? Um, he just allowed it without the possibility of us correcting it. Because that Hebrew scripture has, and that, those Greek manuscripts have been alongside these translations so people even like us can check it out and say hey that you know if somebody insists to us no it says uh, today you will be with me in paradise you Christians are wrong you know the bible says today you will be with me in paradise we can say well no it's not true yes but you don't know greek but i know somebody does know greek and <laughs> you know let's have a look show me the punctuation in the greek well, there isn't any. Well, there we, there's the point then. So we are expected to do this sort of research work. If somebody says, can I learn the truth on a desert island if I just had the New International Version? Yes, I think you could. But that's not where we are. We're not in that situation. We're, we're in this, you know, this, this environment where we've got all sorts of Bible tools. And in fact, it's getting even more complicated because as more and more translations come online and as more and more Bible software comes online, you know, our mind just gets befuddled with all the, all the possibilities. So I'm trying to clear a path, really, through that and say uh, there was the Hebrew, there was the Greek. It's come down to us faithfully. There are various attempts to translate it, some better than others, but there's a check that we can make using concordances. But more importantly, perhaps, listening to what it says and hearing the voice of the word itself giving us these clues as to follow the train of thought.
that's what I wanted to get to in this section. Um, and then if we break, we carry on discussion, of course. But then if, when we come back, we can look at some of these passages. We can take a long or short amount of time, depending what you want to do, to, to ask the question. You know, I, look, this one, this, this one would be, well, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting you know, some great erudition here. I'm suggesting if you were talking to the children, doing the daily readings, how would you explain what's in the chapter? Right? And you might say in First Chronicles 29, well, it's David. Uh, it's about David. And this is, about, this is David speaking. And this is David speaking to God. And now this section is talking about David. It's not David speaking. It's, a, it's about the, the Chronicles speaking about David. And you could say to a little child, that's what's in the chapter. So you might say, let's have a look at his prayer. Where does his prayer begin and end? Yeah? And let's, let's look at the prayer as a whole. And, and what does it say as a whole? Right? So, yes, we go verse by verse through. But that sometimes is not quite accurate. Yes, we'll go verse by verse, but those verses weren't there. <laughs> we need to, in the original, we need to say, here's a chunk of scripture that, that is defined by itself and makes sense, and that's how we're going to think of the sections. When you do that, you can walk down the street together with a brother, and you can say, that chapter we read, oh yes, oh, oh, David's prayer, a wonderful prayer, you know, it actually allows you to think about it as a whole uh, and puts it in a context and, and allows it to speak to us. So I just want us to do that. Now, you, you might think this is um, too easy, uh, but it's a good place to start building up, you know, those units which then might create a, a, a fuller picture for us.